0: I love to worship with this services band. Uh, it is good stuff. Thank you, James, and the rest of the team, and brother Dave. It is really good to see you back up on the on the guitar. Thank you. I want to give a follow-up to last week. You had a chance to meet Brad Henning. Remember, he was coming last Sunday night to talk to our kids about sexuality and relationships. God knows that our kids need to get good information because they're getting plenty of information that's not so good. I'm really pleased to tell you that last Sunday we had 120 kids who showed up to hear what God says about relationships in there. So it was great. So, part B comes today. After this service at 1215, Brad is going to be here. This time it's for the parents, for grandparents, and for champions of kids. I had one woman who came to me between services last week and she said, okay, I'm willing to talk, but I don't know what to say. I, I don't even know how to address these things. And I'll bet many of you kind of are gripped with that kind of fear. There's no guy who can help you better. So, on the, in, you know, really from the heart of what I was talking about last week about our, the stand that we need to take in our culture, I want to encourage all of you adults who care about kids to take the time to go down right after this service and listen to Brad, and he will be there meeting with you uh, in the arena. I'm glad to welcome my sweetheart church today. Welcome to all of you for worship. We're here continuing a journey through the story. If you're new to our church, it's a a, a, a kind of a bridged version of the Bible, and we're going from Genesis to Revelation uh, all the way through this year, and we're looking at the grand overarching themes and the great characters uh, of the story, of God's story. We're discovering that this is not uh, about 66 different little books that have been stapled together. This is all one story. And the other thing we're looking at is the scarlet thread. What's the scarlet thread? Jesus, Jesus right? Someone's saying it up here. Yes, it's Jesus. We, one of the things that I, I hope you're beginning to see is that Jesus doesn't just show up in Matthew, in Bethlehem. Jesus shows up in Genesis chapter 1 and we see him again and again, sometimes more obvious, sometimes more nuanced, but we're hearing whispers and we're catching glimpses of the Messiah and we realize, oh, this wasn't an afterthought that God came up with. Jesus has been there from the beginning of all and he is a part of God's story from the beginning to the end. So that's what we're about today, and I welcome you here. How many <clears throat> how many are keeping up with this in, the, in our accountability? How many read the chapter on the judges last week? That's awesome. That's awesome. If you haven't, it's not too late. Get on board, and I guarantee you you're going to get way out, more out of this this year if you say, I'm going to discipline myself to do that. So I hope you'll join in with us. Here's the deal. When we come to this chapter this coming week, I think we do so with some sense of relief because honestly, the last few chapters have been hard and harsh. It's a hard season in the story, isn't it? We think back to Egypt when God wants to set his people free and he has to send terrible plagues in order to accomplish that. That's harsh. We think about it when they're in the wilderness wandering around and, and because of their, uh, their doubting and their grumbling, their failure, they end up wandering for 40 years. That's harsh and hard. In Joshua, we read about how they finally make their way into the promised land, but then it's one bloody battle after another for them to get a foothold in this land. God has given them, but they still got to take it. That's hard and harsh, isn't it? And then last week, the judges It's such a disappointing story, isn't it? Because we see this 400-year cycle of people's rebellion against God. They turn against the Lord. They are punished for it. They enter into a time of oppression. They cry out for mercy. God hears their mercy, sends a judge, saves them, and it's right back into the same cycle again again and again and again and again. It's harsh, isn't it? In fact, we're, the last verse of Judges last week is, it's a disappointing summary statement of this disappointing response of God's people. In, in, uh, in those days, we read, there was no king in Israel. Read those last words with me together. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's a, it's a disappointing, heart sickening uh, uh, judgment, isn't it? And then we turn the page. And suddenly there's a a ray of light and hope and sweetness in this little book called Ruth. It's only only four chapters long. Ruth takes place during the time of the judges that we were reading about this last week. It's in the midst of that. So it's a kind of a, a bright spot in a really a dark time. Ruth is one of those rare books in the Bible that's written from the perspective of a woman. I really think, from what I understand, it addresses issues, concerns, the heart of of a woman, and it's written about a woman. There are not that many books like that in the Bible, so it's kind of rare, and it's really pretty precious. If the book of Judges was made into a TV series, it would have to be on a, a manly, violent channel like Spike TV, right? When you come to Ruth if that was made into a TV series, it is Hallmark Channel all the way, right? <laughs> right? It would be right after uh, Murder, She Wrote. I mean, God, watch that. And then there's no greater expression of my love for my wife than that I sit down and enjoy that uh, show with her, Murder, She Wrote. But when you read this book, at first glance you're going to say, yeah, it's sweet, but what is it doing here? What is the purpose of this, this book? Why does... God have it here in his word. I promise you, by the time you're done reading this this week, in fact, by the time you're done listening to this message today, I'll be disappointed if you won't be able to say, ah, that's why Ruth is in the Bible, and you're going to see that scarlet thread pulsating before your eyes, I, I promise, okay? Will you hold me to that if that's not the case? But I bet you will. So, the book of Ruth. It starts with a woman named Naomi. Naomi's name means pleasant or sweet. For much of her life, so far, life had been pretty sweet. She met the man of her dreams, Elimelech. She married him. She had two strapping boys. Life was chugging right along. Things were going well. And suddenly, their land was hit with a terrible famine. There was no food to be found anywhere. Speaking of no food to be found anywhere, I was walking through Hagen's grocery store last week. <laughs> it is so sad and so irksome, this beautiful store. The shelves are empty all because of this series of colossal screw-ups, and I'm getting amens for that. I mean, I know the, my wife would uh, amen it, and I remember thinking as I was walking through that store looking at the nothingness on the shelf, I thought... What if this were the only grocery store in Gig Harbor? We would be in trouble. Well, when Naomi went to shop, her shelves were empty too, and not because the feds chased Safeway out of Gig Harbor. They were empty because... Famine had hit the land. The land was parched. There was nothing being produced. And so Elimelech does what he had to do. He had to feed his family. And so he made the hard decision. They were going to leave their little chunk of the promised land. And they were going to go somewhere where they would find food. And that somewhere was a land called Moab. Take a look at the screen. You'll see the purple. That's where the kingdom of Moab was. It was on the east side of the Dead Sea. And I'll just tell you this, there was no love lost between the Moabites and the Israelites. It started way back when Israel escaped Egypt on their way uh, through there. They went to Moab and said, would you help us out? We're hungry and we need some water. And Moab said, no, we won't. And so they held on to a grudge and that grudge kind of peaks out of Deuteronomy chapter 23 when we read these words written later on, no Ammonite or Moabite of or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the 10th generation. Okay, you Moabites, you're not going to help us out. That's fine. You are never coming to church with us. That's basically what they're saying. 10 generations. That's a long grudge, isn't it? But there was bad blood. It didn't help that their fat king named Eglon was assassinated by one of the judges, remember, Ehud, who stuck the sword in his belly and just left it there? That what didn't help things along in the Moabite-Israelite relationship. And then there was this. The Moabites worshipped what was probably the most bloodthirsty, awful pagan god in the pantheon of pagan gods, and that was saying something. His name was Molech, Molech. Molech was a big, bronze god. He was hollowed out. He sat and had his arms outstretched like this. And the way that they worshipped Molech was to build a huge fire inside of that hollow idol until the arms were red hot and then they would take their firstborn sons and lay them in the arms of Molech and sacrifice them to that god. Moab was not a nice place. It was inhospitable, it was inhumane, it was pagan, and it had food. And so Elimelech led his family there to eat. I think it's true and fair to say that for women, security and home means a lot. And so you have to imagine that for Naomi, the idea of of leaving behind her her land, her family, her friends, and going to this foreign place, it had to be hard, right? Right? I mean, guys kind of would rise up to it, but, but there's something deep that that stirs in, 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 uh, in women. But she could say, you know, I've got my family. I've got my family, so we'll make this. Uh, that was until Elimelech got sick and died. And suddenly, suddenly Naomi is alone, a, a, a widow, a, a single mom raising two boys in a pagan land. But you know what? She raises herself up by it. All right, I got my two sons. Poor myself. and the boys meet a couple of beautiful Moabite da- women named Orpa, probably not your choice for uh, daughters' names, but Orpa and Ruth, and they get married, and so things are going well. and And it wasn't her choice to have Moabite daughter-in-law, daughters-in-law, but she was going to make the most of it, and she got, she began to grow fond of them. So things are moving along in Moab. And then one of her sons gets sick and dies. And then the other son gets sick and dies. And there's Naomi. Her husband's gone. Her land is gone. Her boys are gone. And she is trapped in this pagan land that she hates. So with nothing holding her there, she says, I'm going home. She heard that that things had eased up back at home, and uh, and that the 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 famine had re, had had eased, and so she said, "I'm going back." And and to their credit, the two daughters-in-law say, "We're going to go with you." Orpah and Ruth say, "We'll come along." And Naomi stops and she says, "Don't do that. Go back to your people. You're young. You have a chance to get married again. You can have children." Listen, I don't have any future here. Your whole future is here. So Orpah turns around and she goes back. But Ruth would have nothing of it. Ruth, for reasons that we don't understand, she had fallen in love with Naomi. She was committed to Naomi. And she said, no, I'm going with you wherever you're going. And in fact, we read in the first chapter of this book what I I think are maybe the most sublime words about faithfulness in a relationship that you might read Anywhere, You know these words, but let me read them to you again. And just imagine, here is Ruth talking to Naomi. who's was trying to talk her into going back home. She's, and this is what Ruth says to her mother-in-law. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. This is the word of the Lord. And isn't it a sweet word? Isn't it a sweet, powerful, faithful words? So together they returned to the Promised Land. Uh, Naomi with Ruth in tow. When they got there, Naomi's village was so tiny; there were probably only about two hundred people living there. When Naomi approaches, they recognized her from the distance, and they ran out to welcome her back and to greet her. But there was something about her visage, something about her face, that had changed. And of of course, it would—you know—there there was brokenness and loss in her life. Maybe she had aged incredibly. But they cried out words that you really don't want to hear after you've been away from someone for so long. They, they said, can this be Naomi? That's not the way you'd like to be greeted when you see someone after a couple of years. Are you really, Mark? Yeah, yes, I really am. Thank you so much. <laughs> can this be Naomi? And Naomi responds with these plaintive words. Listen to what she says. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. She says, don't call me pleasant anymore. That's my old name. But there's nothing pleasant about my life anymore. From now on, I have a new name. If you're going to talk to me, I want you to call me by that that name. My new name is Mara. Call me bitter. Wow. In some ways, you can hardly blame her. She's lost her husband. She's lost her boys. She's lost her land. She has no heirs, no future, no legacy, only loss, only bitterness. Well, that's not quite right. She also has one incredibly faithful Moabite daughter in law named Ruth, doesn't she? And Ruth goes to work. She thinks, well, we've got to eat. So Ruth goes out, it was the barley harvesting season, and so Ruth goes out to the field and she follows the gleaners, and as they pick the stalks of barley, she picks up what's left over, what's been dropped on the ground. It just so happens that she went to the field of Boaz. Say Boaz. He's got a place to play in this uh, later on. Boaz was a relative of Naomi. Naomi. And she happened to go to Boaz's field. Boaz sees Ruth, what she's doing, you know. And he has already heard of the kindness that she has shown to Naomi. This foreigner, this this pagan Moabitess. And so, despite the fact he had nothing in common, Boaz is kind to her. He listens to her story. He invites her to sit down and have something to eat. He says, you stay in my field. You'll be safe there. He... He tells the the young men in the field, you leave that girl alone. Don't you bother her. Keep your hands off of her. And in fact, when when she's away, he whispers to them, and I want you to drop a few extra sheaves of barley behind you so that she can collect more, so she can take home more. So all of that is what happens. Ruth returns after a very productive day of gleaning. She shows the take to Naomi and she tells the story of what Boaz has done and a light bulb goes off in Naomi's head. She concocts a scheme. And I'm not even going to tell you The details of the scheme, it's just weird. You're just going to have to read what she comes up with. But she comes up with a scheme to allow Boaz to take more attention of Ruth, to pay more attention to her. And ultimately, her thought is, I want to get this guy to marry this girl. She was playing matchmaker. And as it turns out, it worked out. It worked out in a really remarkable way. You'll see the details of it. But here I want to use this as an opportunity to talk about the key phrase that comes out of the book of Ruth, okay? It's an idea that you see from the beginning of the Bible until the end, but this phrase appears only in Ruth and in some form 20 different times. So when you hear this, you are hearing a a dominant theme in the book of Ruth, okay? Here's the phrase, kinsman, redeemer. Say that. Say it like you're still awake. Ready? Kinsman, redeemer right. Now when you read the story, you'll see that it's called guardian redeemer. I actually prefer this translation, kinsman redeemer. Let me explain. Would you love for me to explain this to you? Okay, I will explain to you. Uh, There were ways of becoming, different ways of becoming a slave. One way was just to be beaten in battle and be taken into captivity. It was the spoils of war. And if you were that kind of slave, you were going to stay in slavery for the rest of your life, likely. But there was another way that you would become a slave. Let's say t- life got hard for you. Crises hit, things turned on you, and, and you ran out of money and you had no resources. You could sell off your ancestral land. That was a hard thing to do. But if that didn't do enough, you could sell yourself into slavery in order to survive. We had that in our own country. It's the way many people made their way across from the old country to the new country, right? What was that called? Indentured? Indentured servitude. And it was the same thing. Basically, you could hope to work your way out of this, but it was going to be many, many years of hard labor until you earned your freedom. But there was another way to be set free. If you had a relative, and it had to be the next relative, if you had a relative, a kinsman, who had the money and who had the willingness and who was free, who wanted to pay your debt... He could buy your freedom. He could buy you out of slavery. And that was the kinsman redeemer. Boaz, when he met Ruth, he was blown away that such a beautiful young girl was interested in marrying an old guy like him. It's kind of the way I felt when Cindy, my child bride, agreed to become my bride. I mean, it's awesome, yes! And so she agrees, and it looks like it would be great. It would mean a new life for Ruth and Naomi. It would mean that someone could buy and hold on to their ancestral land. It would be someone to take care of them and, and who would provide an heir so that the name would not be lost in the dusts of history. It looked perfect and Boaz was game. He said, sure. There was one problem. Boaz wasn't the next in line. There was someone else, a kinsman, who had first right of refusal. So Boaz goes to meet this guy in the middle of the town, surrounded by witnesses, and he said, so, it's your right, are you willing to redeem Naomi's land? The guy sure, said, sure, I'm always looking for a good land deal, absolutely. Boaz quickly adds, by the way, the other thing, it's a two-parter, you got to marry Ruth, it's a package deal. And the guy says, hmm, my wife's not going to like that, I've got it. it'll screw up my estate planning, And so he says, "No, I'm I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do it under those circumstances." Boaz says, "So you're you're saying uh, it's okay for me to marry this girl and to and to redeem Naomi's land? That's okay." He said, "Yeah, that's okay." And you know what they did to seal the deal? We shake hands. You know what they did in that day? They exchanged shoes. I know yet another weird thing. But yes, they exchanged shoes with each other. And while they were holding each other in the sandals, they said, okay, that's a deal. It's a done deal. So Boaz marries Ruth. They have a child. Naomi gets a grandson. Her ancestral land is restored and will have an heir. They live happily ever after. See what I mean? There's not a sword drawn, no bloodshed. It is sweet. But you still need to ask the question, what's the point? Why is this story in here? Why did God allow these little four chapters to be tucked into his word? And I'm going to show you two reasons, okay? Two reasons. First of all, it's to teach us the idea of chesed. Would you say that word? Chesed. And you've got to say it right. Chesed. Go ahead. Chesed. Now wipe off the back of the head of the person sitting in front of you. Chesed. Chesed. You know one... Hebrew word already. What's the one Hebrew word everyone knows? Shalom, right. Maybe you don't all know. How many know shalom? It's kind of like Hebrew for aloha. It means everything. So here's the second word, chesed, chesed, chesed. Say it again. I want you to remember this word. It means loving kindness. It means unfailing love. It means steadfast love. Those are all the ways this word is translated. And And it describes God's faithfulness, his chesed Loving faithfulness. When God delivered the people through the Red Sea, Moses wrote a song and listened to one of the lines. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. What was that steadfast love? What's the Hebrew word? There we go, chesed. In Psalm 103, we read, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. What is that? Chesed. Chesed, now this is important. Listen to this paragraph. This is important. Chesed is not the love of emotional feeling. It is the love of action. It is the love of purpose. It is the love of kindness. Chesed does not depend upon the response of the one who receives it. It is entirely dependent upon the will of the one who offers it. Do you hear that? Chesed does not depend on the way that a person receives it. Chesed is entirely up to the person who says, I will do this. I will choose to be kind. I will choose to love. Over the years, I've given you more Greek lessons on a Sunday morning than you probably care to remember. But there is one Greek word that I'll bet you do remember. It's the word in the New Testament Greek for the highest form of love. What is that word? Agape. See, you have paid attention. You make my heart swell. Thank you. Agape is God's love. When we read John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That's agape. And think about what it says. God so loved, agape the world that he sent his son. He sent his son to suffer. He sent his son to die. He sent his son to redeem us. There is a glimpse of agape love right there. It's all about God's sending love. It's sacrificial. It's giving. And that's the word in New Testament. Chesed is the Old Testament equivalent of agape. Alright? Chesed is kindness. When Naomi tries to send her daughters-in-law back, she says, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. And may the Lord show chesed, kindness, to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. And then Boaz praises Ruth. He's, un, he's so blown away by her kindness to him that she's willing to give her life to him. And she's, he is blown away by her kindness to Naomi. He says, The Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness, Chesed, is greater than that which you showed earlier. In other words, the, the kindness you're showing me is even greater than the kindness that you showed to your mother-in-law. So Ruth is the epitome of chesed. The epitome of this faithful, kind, never give up, no matter what comes along, love. Think back again to her words to Naomi when Naomi's trying to send her back to Moab. Remember what she said, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And where you die... I will die, and there I will be buried. What kind of love is that? She says, I will leave my people to follow you. I will leave my God to be with you. And until the day when one of us or the other breathes their last, I will be your faithful companion. Isn't that awesome? And isn't that rare and remarkable? Can I tell you why it's even more remarkable? Say yes. I will. Here's why it's even more remarkable. Because I don't think Naomi was very pleasant to live with. Do you? What was her name change again? Mara, which means? Ah, she chose that name for herself. She says, Don't call me pleasant anymore. Don't call me that. Call me Bitter. That's the new name I've given to myself. From now on, that's how you will address me, Miss Bitter. And there's no doubt that her life was hard. I mean, look at all that she went through. But there are some people who go through that kind of pain and somehow they allow God to work on them and in them and through them in that pain, to shape them, to deepen them, to sweeten them. And then there are those who surrender to bitterness. There are some here today who are surrendering to bitterness. You have changed your name to Mara, and it is not the way to go. Doesn't it say all the more about Ruth's character that she showed chesed unfailing, unwavering, unstoppable kindness to a woman who had given herself the nickname Bitter? This world needs more chesed. Our relationships need more chesed. Our marriages need more chesed. Every marriage ceremony, most include the words, till death do us part. But most of us don't really mean that. Most of us mean, till death Or until someone better comes along? Or until you irritate me? Or bore me? Or don't meet my needs? Or become unattractive to me? Or get sick? That's the new vows that we ought to take in marriage. And hesed means I will be faithful to you no matter how grumpy, frumpy, Bumpy, bitter, difficult, or disappointing, you might become. I will be kind to you even if you don't want to receive my kindness. That's chesed. We live in a flipping culture. You know that, right? There is no loyalty, there is no endurance. We flip. We flip everything. We flip houses, we flip marriages, we flip relationships, we flip churches, we flip religions. This idea of chesed, of enduring, faithful kindness, regardless of the response, is not only countercultural, it is viewed as foolishness by our world. When the world sees chesed, it says, You are a sucker. And God says, I have a different opinion. Which is why this book is also valuable for a second reason because we discover God's chesed toward us. The faithful, enduring compassion of God towards us in so many ways. For instance, we find God's chesed towards the outsiders. Ruth. Ruth, a Moabitess, a pagan. She is invited into God's family. How remarkable is that? Chesed. But there's more, as the TV ad man will say. There's more. Do you know who Boaz's mother is? was Rahab, Rahab, the harlot in Jericho who saved the spies. That was Boaz's mom. Do you see God just giggling? He's, I'm just going to mess with all of your paradigms, God says. So the son of a pagan prostitute marries the pagan enemy of Israel And in God's chesed, they play a pivotal role in the redemptive story. There they are, hanging out in Boaz's hometown. Did did I forget to mention the name of the hometown they were hanging out in? Bethlehem. And they have a boy. In Bethlehem, they have a boy. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse. The father of? Ah, how awesome is that? The last line of Judges said, in those days there was no king in Israel. Then comes little Ruth and says, ah, but a king is coming. A king is coming. Yes, a king born in Bethlehem. Yes, David, but do you catch the glimpse of the scarlet thread? A king who is much farther down the line, also a king born in Bethlehem, who will be our kinsman, redeemer, writ large, who will be our brother, who will come and and pay the price of our slavery, who will purchase our freedom. It is Jesus, the king of Bethlehem. It is the ultimate expression of God's chesed, his enduring, unfailing, unwavering, loving kindness. Despite our response, despite our bitterness, despite our wickedness, despite our desire to sell ourselves again and again and again into slavery, God said, I have hesed toward you, and his name is Jesus, the kinsman redeemer. Isn't this good? Aren't you glad that book is in there? You've got to read it. You don't even need the story. Just read it. It's only four chapters for crying out loud. But it does pose a question. One of the questions it asks is, is this. Are you kind? Are you kind? It is one of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. When the Spirit of Chesed God lives inside of us, one of the things we should exhibit is kindness. How kind are you? Are you enduringly kind to your bitter mother in law? I had a woman who came up after first service. She said, I was trying to decide whether to invite my mother in law to Thanksgiving. I guess I gotta. Are you kind toward your inattentive spouse? Are you kind toward your unreasonable parents? Not that any of you have unreasonable parents, but... Are you kind towards your disappointing child? Not that any of you are disappointing children. Are you kind toward your outrageous boss? Are you a kind person? Shouldn't that be one of the reflections of what it means to be a follower of the God of Chesed? You know, the the rough thing about preaching is that it preaches to you before it preaches to anyone else. And this week as I was writing this sermon about chesed, about kindness, I realized "Hmm, I have someone that I've not been kind to. He's made me mad. He's disappointed me. And I didn't want to have anything to do with him and pulled back. And I thought, I'm glad that God didn't pull back from me when I disappointed him. And so I, I reached out to him. This week, I want you to do the same thing. What is it that God stirs in you? Who is it God is calling you to reach out to, to be kind to? We, sh- we show chesed not because anyone deserves it, we show chesed because God showed it to us. We love because He first loved us. Last week, I, uh, I preached a hard word. Would you agree? It was a hard word. Yeah, I think it was a true word and it was an important word, but I, it was a hard one. I talked about how we as, a, as Christians must stand up in a culture of moral relativism. We must stand up when they say, hey, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. It, it all you know, all comes out in the wash. And we say, oh, that's, that's poppycock. There's one truth, God's eternal truth. It doesn't change no matter what your opinion. So that matters. But here's the truth of it of the truth. Christians can use truth to bludgeon people with. And so this message is part two to last week's message. Jesus didn't say they will know that you are my believers by your truth. He said they will know that you belong to me by your love, by the way that you love. And that is chesed unfailing, enduring, gracious kindness even towards those who revile us. When we do that, it bears witness to the truth of our words. Our behavior, our compassion bears witness to the truth of our words. When we are kind even to those who despise us, who vehemently disagree with us, that is how we gain a hearing for the King of Bethlehem. And so I ask it again as we prepare to hear from our worship team. Are you kind? What does God need to stir in you? Do you need a new injection of chesed in your life? Pray with me, and let's ask God to give us that. Lord, I ask that you would do that in us. We, we can't just gen this up. We can't manufacture it. It is your spirit at work in us that helps us to love in this way. Your unfailing unwavering faithful love in us. You have paid the debt that we could not pay. You have redeemed us by your sacrifice and you have changed us from the inside out. God changed this part of us too. Make us more kind. Make us more filled with your chesed that all of the world, even the world that disagrees with us, will be smitten by our kindness